3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on 3CR 855 AM, and this is the Thursday Breakfast Show um, coming to you uh, on Thursday, the 1st of October. Um, Oh, my gosh, the year has gone incredibly quickly. And um, likewise, this segment is just going to fly by because we have a huge amount of content for you today. So strap in, folks. Um, so I'll just, you know, jump right into it, let you know what we've got on for the show today. Um, first of all, Carly speaks with Shahrazad Blue about Omar Radi, who's a Moroccan journalist who recently has been jailed on a series of charges, including espionage. Omar is an award-winning investigative journalist and human rights activist who frequently publishes articles about land grabs by speculators and the corruption within Moroccan officials. Omar's imprisonment comes after an investigation by Amnesty International, which found that his phone was infected with NSO Pegasus software, which is Israeli spyware that was that last year was used illegally against journalists, dissidents and campaigners around the world. We'll also return to Thursday Breakfast poetry and writing segment. This week, we have readings by two poets. First, we hear a poem by Janine Lane called Color of Massacre, and then we hear Boy Dentata by Vincent Silk. After that, you'll hear an interview that I did with Danny Cotton, who's a casual tutor and PhD student at the University of Sydney and a member of the USID Casuals Network, who spoke with me about the recent protests against course and staff cuts and fee hikes at the University of Sydney, and the New, the New South Wales police response. Next up, Carly speaks to Kristen O'Connell from the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, who's the acting communications coordinator there, uh, who joins Carly to speak about the Australian government's recent cuts to job seeker payments and the union's concerns around changes to mutual obligations for income support recipients. And finally, you'll hear an interview that I did with Robin Oxley, is a Tharwal and Yorta Yorta woman and criminologist and lecturer at Western Sydney University who spoke with me about the recent practice direction issued by the Victorian state coroner regarding Indigenous deaths in custody. Next up, we're going to go to Kate Kelly with the news. Good morning, I'm Kate Kelly and here are the top stories on 3CR this Thursday. New statistics show young people received almost half of all fines dished out during Victoria's first wave of coronavirus, while the South Sudanese and Aboriginal communities received an outsized number of fines. So the new report comes as the Victorian government ramps up penalties to $5,000 for breaching COVID-19 gathering rules. The data was released by the Crime Statistics Agency and shows there were over 6,000 breaches of COVID-19 rules associated with 5,474 people during the first wave of the coronavirus pandemic in Victoria. The average age was 29.5 years and just one in four of those fined were women. Approximately 42% of those were under the age of 24. 
So according to the data provided to community legal centres, of the over 6,000 recorded breaches, there were just 67 warning notices issued, and only six businesses were issued with fines. People who were born in South Sudan and Sudan were overrepresented in the fines issues. So they made up 5% of the fines, but only make up around 0.14% of the Victorian population. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people make up 4.7% of the fines, despite making up just 0.8% of the state's population. And a new report finds young Aboriginal people are nearly three times more likely than their non-Indigenous peers to have experienced homelessness, lived in a refuge or in transitional accommodation, and are twice as likely to have couch searched. So the, the report by Mission Australia is based on the results of a survey of more than 1,500 young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Mission Australia CEO James Toomey said the unique challenges and concerns expressed in the report shows more needs to be done to improve the well-being of young um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And he said, all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people and their families should have a safe and stable home. Our young people have made clear, made it clear, it is our time our government developed a national plan to end homelessness with clear targets to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander homelessness. End quote. And in federal news, Alan Tudge unlawfully, unlawfully deprived an asylum seeker of his liberty, leaving him in detention for five days because he thought the, the tribunal that ordered his release got the law wrong. So the, um, in a scathing decision last week, the federal court found that the acting immigration minister engaged in conduct which can only be described as criminal exposing him to both civil and potentially criminal sanctions, including um, contempt of court. Justice Jeffrey Flick warned the minister he cannot place himself above the law and allowed the Afghan man um, to keep the visa awarded to him by the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, despite agreeing that it had got the law wrong. So Taj has denied that he acted inappropriately, but refused to comment further pending a possible appeal. The asylum seeker, a 34-year-old citizen of Afghanistan, um, applied for a safe haven entrepreneur's visa in 2016 on the basis that his work in the Afghan army would put him at risk from the Taliban. On December, on 18th December 2018, five days after Taj became acting minister, a home affairs official refused to grant the visa because the Afghanistani man had pleaded guilty to assaulting his friend in March 2018 in a drunken fight over a mobile phone. And that's it for Thursday's headlines. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Today, I am absolutely delighted to be speaking with Scheherazade Bull. She is a writer, PhD candidate at Deakin University, and of course, a fellow radio host on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Hello, Scheherazade. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, Carly. Uh, thanks for having me. So, in June this year, Moroccan journalist Omar Radi was summoned to the police just days after an investigation by Amnesty um, that alleged that he had repeatedly been targeted with spyware, 
made by Israel's NSO group. Omar has very recently been jailed on espionage and also a series of other charges. He is an award-winning investigative journalist and human rights activist, and he's published articles about land grabs by speculators and corruption of officials. So you're joining me today to talk a little bit more about investigative journalism in Morocco um, and also Omar Radi's case. So can you first start by talking a bit about your personal connections to Morocco and then also maybe get into the politics that's happening in Morocco? Yeah, sure. At the moment? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm an Amadir uh, Moroccan, which means like Indigenous non-Arab Moroccan. Uh, well, my father is anyway, and my mother is uh, French and Tunisian, but um, that's, I guess, my personal connection to Morocco. Um, I've just recently, uh, well, it's not recent anymore. I was supposed to be there this year, but I, I was living there last year, uh, conducting a bit of field work for my PhD, which focuses on social media activism uh, in Morocco and amongst the diaspora. And, yeah, I guess uh, Omar Radi, uh, this is not the first time he's been harassed by uh, the judicial forces of Morocco. Um, he, I think, especially since 2017, I think that's when the court, you mentioned the, the spyware. That's when the court first um, approved the tapping of Omar Adi's phone, and that's when he was reporting on the Haraka Rift, which was one of uh, the largest protest movements that Morocco saw since 2011. Um, and the Rift, if, if we want to talk about it later, the Rift is, is the northern region of Morocco. It's the, it's the piece of land that borders Europe, um, and it shares two land borders with Europe, with Spain. Um, as well as the sea border with the EU. Um, and so that place being a border is in the intrinsically like, <laughs> um, a site of, of violence that maybe we can get into at a different, like later. Um, but yeah, that's, so he was reporting on those protest movements that erupted at the end of 2016, but were quite strong in 2017. Um, and that's when he was first, that's when the, um, Moroccan court first approved the tapping of his phone um, by using, uh, I think, the same software, if not the, if not a different one, but yeah, I'm pretty sure it was the same one, which was developed by an Israeli firm called NSO Group that only sells this specific software to government, um, and it's based on sort of like best practice for Israel tapping um, distance phones in Israel. Um, when I was talking about Israel, I just wanted to uh, confirm that I recognise that land as Palestinian land. Um, and, yeah, when I say Israel, I talk about the that the state, the state of Israel um, targeting uh, activists and mainly Palestinian activists. I just want to say that. And there is a bit of a history in Morocco of investigative journalists being criminalised um, who are quite outspoken journalists. So could you talk a little bit about that history? Yeah, so I guess when we talk about um, the harassment of of journalists in Morocco, uh, we can sort of uh, put it within a context of like a post-colonial context. So uh, once the the French administrators left, um, there was sort of, there was a constitutional monarchy put in place. Uh, and 
the most, I, I guess, the most important time period uh, recent in recent years was the Hassan Tani, uh, which is Hassan II, the king, the previous king's uh, period, which ha- which was a, a dictatorship. Uh, and so any sort of dissent, uh, any sort of people who criticised the king uh, and who criticised Islam, who criticised the state and that sort of thing would be disappeared. Uh, you, you have stories, my, my father and my family and everyone's family has stories of people who would criticise the state and then just disappear and no one knew where they would were or went and no one, no one would ever find out what happened to them. Uh, that you, we do know that, um, there's like, uh, there were a few, there were a few prison camps, uh, where people went. Um, but yeah, we, we know that they never returned from those prison camps. Um, we also know that, so that, that period is called the years of lead. Um, and so the current king, which is Muhammad VI, he's the son of Hassan II, his, his, uh, modus operandi was kind of different. Uh, it wasn't like harsh repression. It was more sort of um, soft diplomacy, I guess you could say. Um, so he set up a reconciliation process with people and victims of his father's, um, I guess, brutal regime. But I guess the structures were still there. Um, and in terms of journalism, obviously, all, the journal- all, all journalism was heavily controlled by the state under Hassan II and then under Muhammad's there was this sort of like, um, I guess, hope that things will be more free uh, and open. Uh, and so, especially since 2000, so um, Muhammad VI came to power in the late 90s. Um, and so that generation that grew up with Muhammad VI also grew up with a, with a hope. Uh, and that you can kind of see that in what happened in 2011 with um, starting in Tunisia with the, uh, um, the uprisings against uh, uh, Hogra and against what, what's known as the Arab Spring, but we don't want to call it the Arab Spring because if you look at what happened post um, the revolutions of 2011, um, they're just the the same, like, the, it was still despotic rule. Look what happened in Egypt. Sisi is just Mubahak 2.0. So, um, journalist is, um, so one of the last, one of the last, um, uh, critical, uh, newspapers or, that are outspoken against the state, uh, called Akbar al um, has, so last year, uh, I think we, we, you interviewed, uh, someone about this last year about the jailing of Hajar Aysuni. Uh, and she was, she also wrote about the same things that Omar Radi wrote about. So she wrote about, uh, land grabs, um, also, uh, in particular the Hirak, the Hiraka movement, which was that protest movement I spoke about earlier in the north of Morocco. Um, and she was arrested in August last year. Um, and, uh, she was arrested for having a so-called illegal abortion, which she denies, and extramarital sex, which she also denies. Um, yeah, and so that's, it's actually quite interesting because, uh, the, the government, so since the press, since freedom of, of speech was 
enshrined in the country's constitution following 2011 uprisings or protests. Um, the government has sought and also has a history of doing this pre um, the press code as well. Um, the, Moroccan, the Moroccan government um, sort of sought to uh, silence critics um, in a different way. They obviously can't do what they did in under the under Hassan Tani, so under the previous king, uh, which was like brutal repression uh, because of the sort of architectures of globalization. Um, but also, uh, they have to seem like they're following the laws. I mean, the the constitution that they wrote. Uh, so they use, they instrumentalize private life, and they instrumentalize, um, in particular, uh, sex, and in particular, um, I think women's rights. Uh, it's a question about women's rights as well, um, which you don't want to, as an activist and as a journalist and as people. And most of the journalists that they do jail uh, are people who are outspoken about this stuff as well. You don't want to say, um, you know, it puts you in a, in a difficult position because then you can't, you don't want to deny uh, an accusation of rape. You don't want to deny uh, that sort of thing. So Hajar Aysuni was was jailed um, was was jailed for uh, extramarital sex. They used a piece of gendered archaic law. Um, to jail her, um, and um, her uncle uh, a few years earlier, uh, Suleiman Raisuni, who was the editor of the same newspaper, was jailed for 15 years for uh, uh, sexual assault charges as well, um, which I, I look, Carly, I just don't even know. It, it puts you, you don't even know what to say, you know? Mm. Like, I don't even know what to, like, I don't even know how to frame it in a way to uphold um, women's rights um, in particular and also sort of call out, call out the silencing of, of critical voices which is exactly mm. what's happening, you know. Um, and then I think I'm not the only one. A lot of feminist organisations um, and women's rights organisations have been silent about these issues as well, even though it affects it affects women's women's rights in the long term because then um, who's going to want to go, like, if... Because who's going to want to be, like, oh, yeah, this person raped me if, like, people aren't going to believe them? Mm. Yeah, no, it's putting individuals in a very difficult position as well as other journalists, other organisations. I imagine potentially also human rights lawyers who are trying to um, draw the world's attention to the fact that there is very much an intention behind the government in targeting these journalists. Um, And I would say that the government is selecting very certain charges with which to um, lay upon these journalists. Like, so Hajar was jailed on the 31st and she was um, pardoned um, by the king. Not that she should be pardoned because she didn't do anything wrong. Um, But, yeah, I guess she, I think it was, um, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, 16 days later she was pardoned in October 
Um, and in December last year, Omar Raji was actually jailed for a tweet that he posted earlier in the year um, where he was uh, criticising the judge that presided over the Haraka Rif case. Uh, so, yeah, again, the northern the northern protest movement, which I think, yeah, maybe we need to talk about as well. Um, but, yeah, like, so, yeah, he was jailed uh, for a period of several weeks um, for this, this tweet, but it wasn't actually the tweet that, like, they just used that piece of social media uh, to, to jail him. It was because of the, his work, right? Um, and also at around the same time in December, there was a lot of, uh, I guess, jailing of, of people for posting on social media. Uh, there was an activist who posted um, a picture of a development, um, which a development on ex-communal land um, that was sold off and bought by a, um, I think it was Saudi, but like a golf, com- a golf, a golf, someone from the Gulf, um, and they created a, a, a development, a hotel of some sort, um, and then he was arrested for four years. Uh, there was another... And sorry, that was just off one post on social yeah. media? Yeah. Wow. Um, there was a kid, I think 18-year-old, I've got a list somewhere, I didn't bring it out because I, I didn't think we were going to talk about this, but yeah, like there was um, like kids as young as 18 um, who were jailed for like posting like... Uh, stuff uh post i think he was he was in he was in um hospital and he was just criticizing the hospital because it was uh the hospitals in morocco are terrible um and he was criticizing the hospital and he was jailed for four years um yeah and this is just like this happened like quite a lot last year um i was just gonna ask you know is there any international organisations such as Human Rights Watch or Amnesty that are really, like, amplifying the voices of journalists in Morocco and yeah, the situation? I, yeah, I guess, I guess, okay, yeah, there is. So Human Rights Watch in particular do a really good job. Uh, they base a lot of their reports, uh, like, people in Morocco are, are writing and working on those reports as well. Um, there's also several Moroccan human rights organisations um, that can and can't say things sometimes, depending on the political climate. Um, but there's also a number of um, Facebook groups and Twitter groups uh, and human rights campaign groups that have started. Uh, I guess the best one, if you want to find out more as well, um, would be, for Omar Radi anyway, would be Free Omar Radi. Um, and that's uh, O-M-A-R-R-A-D-I. Um, and they're both on Facebook and, um, and they're both on Facebook and Twitter. Um, so, yeah, like I guess a lot of campaigns have started online um, but that doesn't sort of stop the repression on the ground. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, I feel like, like the, uh, what do you call it? the civil society is really active and really strong, but also so is the government and their tactics. 
sorry, I guess mm. like, I don't know if that doesn't really answer your question. <laughs> how, can, how can listeners find out more about what's happening in Morocco? Yeah, I guess um, I would just follow maybe Human Rights Watch if you're interested in that. They have a Morocco Western Sahara section. Um, there's also several uh, people you can follow and uh, – sites you can follow so on Facebook you can just follow free Omar Radi a lot of it is in French and Arabic so but you could just press the translate button and that would uh, sort you out um, and they would they'll lead to a lot of things there's also free Kulshi uh, which is spelt uh, so free F-R-E-E and then Kulshi spelt K-O-U-L-C-H-I which means free or um, and they they are on Facebook and Twitter, though their Twitter is inact- has been inactive since um, earlier this year. Um, but, yeah, their Facebook group has a lot of info. Um, but, yeah, I guess it's really hard because um, a lot of the stuff is in French, you know. Um, so, yeah. But you can press, I guess, there's Google Translate. There's always Google Translate. Um, well, thank you so much, Shahrazad, for joining us today on, of course, our show, 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast, to talk about Omar Radi, who is an incredible investigative journalist and human rights activist um, who's recently been jailed on a number of charges, including espionage in Morocco. Um, thanks for listening to my blab. Uh, if anyone wants to find out more, they can also just like tweet at me, um, which is at Sherry Blue, and I'll answer their questions probably. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks so much. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. For today's poetry segment, we're going to hear two poems by two different poets. First up, we have Janine Lane reading her poem, The Colour of Massacre. Janine Lane is a Wiradjuri writer, poet and academic from southwest New South Wales. This poem was published as part of Firefront, First Nations Poetry and Power Today, edited by Alison Whitaker. Hello, my name's Janine Lane and I'm a Wurbadjuri poet. I'd like to read this poem called The Colour of Massacre, which I wrote a few years ago and is part of a collection, my collection, called Walk Back Over, which does exactly that and it spends time walking back over some of the fraughtness of official Australian history and giving it at least in some places, an Aboriginal voice. This is called The Colour of Massacre. A new century dawned and white Australians got urged to feel comfortable and relaxed about their history. Shake off that irksome black armband, legacy of radical lefties who can't leave well enough alone their tiresome chant that white Australia has a black history and we all have blood on our hands. We've got a new song to sing now. Right-wing historians hummed this new tune, set about to write Aboriginal massacres clean out of the record, history books, out of the classroom. 
There were not surely 15,000 Palawa people in Van Diemen's land before the arrival of white Christians, they said. There weren't even 5,000. Only a few hundred naked savages roamed there and a meagre hundred or so killed in self-defence, of course. Perhaps they were stealing. Darker still, they were cannibals, weren't they? Think about it. What happened to the remaining? Nobody wrote it. No history of massacre here. Perhaps saved by white Christian charity? Blended in with the rest? Or maybe they died of natural causes or perished just because they couldn't adapt? The rest is hearsay. Oral history's words in the air. Nothing on paper. So who remembers? The Aborigines didn't count in numbers. Why bother now? Nobody recorded those other syllables in time, full of sound, fury, punctuation of blood, blows and screams. But wasn't their blood red? And didn't their loved ones wail? Late in the 20th century, a population of 18 million the shootings of 35 settlers went down in Australian history as the Port Arthur Massacre, prompting a Prime Minister who denied black massacres to buy back the nation's firearms to minimise the chance of another white one. But wasn't their blood red too? And didn't their loved ones wail? What is the colour of massacre? That was Janine Lane reading The Colour of Massacre. Next, we hear Boy Dentata by Vincent Silk. Vincent is a writer, poet and community organiser. His work has been published in the UTS Writers Anthology, Voiceworks, Going Down Swinging, Archer and Seizure, among other places. Earlier in the year, Carly, from Thursday Breakfast, spoke with Vincent about his first novel, Sisters of No Mercy. And you can go back and find that episode um, in our podcasts. But now, Vincent Silk reading Boy Dentata. Boy Dentata. To have been for a time any kind of lake or pond, as I was, from bud to bloom only, a place to splash in, mossy or starred, a fernery with amphibious tenants, a freshwater river mouth, saltwater estuary, and to have undergone, as river systems do, transformation, willingly or not, to have become clay, cracking under hoof, bracken, ulcerating bovine tissue, clod, trod, depressed, to have been stymied, damned, full of dead fish, wall to wall with displaced yabbies, waving desperate, enormous claws, a boulder rolled before the cave mouth, to have heard the whistling breath of that chill wind through lonely autumn tunnels is to belong to a people 
so riddled with demons, strong enough to withstand the impulse to set fire to it. The whole thing. It is to live as a bundle of sticks. That was Vincent Silk reading Boy Dentata, and before that, you heard Janine Lane reading her poem, The Colour of Massacre. And that brings us to the end of the poetry and writing segment for today's show. Stay with us on Thursday breakfast, 855 AM 3CR. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. You're back on Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Up next, you'll hear an interview with Danny Cotton, who's joined us to talk about the protests against course and staff cuts and fee hikes at the University of Sydney. Danny is a casual tutor and a PhD student at UCID and a member of the UCID Casuals Network. Hey, Danny. Hi, how are you going? Good, how are you? Not too bad. I really appreciate you taking the time to join me on the show today. Um, so could you start off by telling listeners a little bit more about who you are? Uh, yeah, so I'm a uh, casual academic tutor here at the Uni of Sydney. So I, um, I tutor a couple of classes here and I'm also a PhD student. And yeah, I've been involved with um, some of the fights here at UCID trying to um, defend the, the real attacks that we're seeing on jobs as well as education um, coming both from the government and the management here. Absolutely. And uh, for listeners who might not be familiar with what's going on in higher ed at the moment, in short, governments pretty much decided to gut the higher ed sector during the COVID-19 pandemic. So refusing to provide higher education workers with JobKeeper, apart from some select private universities. And for some reason, New York University's Sydney campus, which I didn't know existed, um, and leading to management across Australian universities choosing to implement huge course and staffing cuts, even as domestic enrollments are still rising. Um, so this is also set to be complemented by a series of fee hikes across certain areas of study as government further divest from courses that are not seen as contributing to what they framed as, quote unquote, job ready degrees. Um, so against this pretty bleak landscape, how did the recent demonstrations at the University of Sydney begin? And um, maybe could you tell us a bit about who's been involved and what are some of the key issues that you're um, campaigning against? Yeah, well, the protests have been uh, ongoing since the beginning of the year when we first started discovering about uh, the, the scale of attacks. And we've had some real wins, like we uh, originally, you know, the, there was a big fight about the course cuts where, um, particularly in the Faculty of Arts, they wanted to cut up to 30% of all courses. And then after a serious campaign uh, of casual staff in particular, as well as students, um, we managed to see that reduced down to 8%. Uh, so it has been over both courses, but also uh, jobs. So in terms of who's been involved, um, 
it's been a really great alliance between students and staff, which has been really uh, powerful. We've, um, yeah, so the the National Tertiary Education Union members, uh, as well as people from the Casuals Network, have joined together with students to have a number of mobilisations. Unfortunately, from this semester in particular, the police crackdown against these demonstrations has been quite shocking. Um, we've had thousands of dollars of fines given out. We've seen students, uh, students of the university, staff members given $1,000 fines. I myself was fined $1,000 for a very small demonstration. Um, there were only uh, five casual staff at the time. Um, and this is in a context for people in, in um, Melbourne may not realise the degree to which there's been a real opening up. We have uh, bars and clubs and beaches are open. People are hanging out with their friends in quite large numbers. You know, I was out at the beaches and they were just packed, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of people. But the police have decided to selectively enforce and uh, uh, interpret the public health order to basically imply that any gathering in particular of protesters of more than 20 people uh, is in breach of the public health order. So um, Sydney University is shaping up as a real battleground on which these public health orders have been fought, although it has been applied to other Black Lives Matters demonstrators. Um, yeah, so definitely really concerning to see the level of police presence on campus. And as you said, um, you know, this isn't this isn't happening in isolation. It's linked into the crackdown that we saw on Black Lives Matter and the way that New South Wales police took protesters to court to try and shut that down. Um, as far as I'm aware from what's being posted by the Usage Casuals Network, these are socially distant um, and, you know, quite safely managed and well organized protests. Um, but as you said, there's quite a significant police presence on campus and um I'm kind of wondering about your thoughts around why their deployment in this context um, and, and in relation to what you're protesting about, but I guess in the broader context of the pandemic is so concerning. It is really concerning the way that the police have been selectively uh, enforcing the public health order. I think in particular, it hasn't been over the kind of lines that we would expect to increase you know, public health, uh, which is really what you know, this should be about. Instead, it has been very much along all of the lines that you might expect if you're familiar with police practice, very much uh, aimed at protesters and progressive voices, unionists, um, as well as that very much uh, targeted at, at, you know, migrant communities and people of colour. Um, so I think the way that these lockdowns are being enforced is always a political question and particularly for the police, which I think have serious issues with kind of systemic racism. Um, yeah, I, I think that needs to be named. So some of the demonstrations, you know, on the, on the, in September 16th, we organized to have socially distanced demonstrations of 20 people or less, each protesting a slightly different issue. The philosophy students had a contingent, the casuals network had a contingent, the tertiary education union had a contingent and so on, kind of protesting all the different facets of the cuts. So we were trying to kind of be within the public health order. Uh, but nonetheless, we had a, a bizarre mobilization of police, you know, 100 police. We're talking about people, riot police marching down Eastern Avenue, uh, shouting over their megaphones to people that if you're sitting down and eating lunch, you're fine, 
But if you're a, if you're if you stand up to participate in the in the demonstration, you're liable to being prosecuted under the public health order. It is pretty plainly, I think, not about COVID nineteen. You know, we're trying to do everything that we can to have our voices heard uh, within, you know, whilst remaining safe. That's obviously what we're doing. Uh, but I think I think it, it really is hypocritical. Uh, there are a couple of examples that I think make that really clear. I mean, we have in my tutorials, there's more than 20 people. Someone spoke to me after the demonstration and said, I have to go and teach an in- indoor class of 66, but this student's being harassed. Can you please just make sure that the police don't... Um, <laughs> that, that they're okay. Um, so I think these are some of the, the bizarre ways that it's playing out. Um, but I think it, it's worth saying that we don't see this as, a, this is not something we take trivially or unseriously. Like we really do see that higher education and public education is under attack in a really serious way that we haven't seen in a very long time, not just at University of Sydney, but all across the country. The number of, we, we, there's been, hundreds of job losses and almost every day there's a new story about a new university that's losing staff that have been teaching there for decades and have just had enough and, and can't take it anymore and are leaving and the, re- the rest of the staff are being left with huge workloads. It's it's really concerning and we really see no other option left to us. Striking is illegal at the moment. Protesting is illegal at the moment. What are we to do? Are we just supposed to sit down and, and allow the education that we care so much about to be attacked? I think we really feel forced into, you know, doing, doing this and, and really, you know, fighting in any way that we can. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, something really worth mentioning, um, alongside this is these decisions that are being made by, uh, by upper management, uh, across universities, um, are not you know, made solely as a, you know, a helpless response to, um, to what government's doing. I mean, there's a, you know, there's, there's agency in both of those, uh, those places to make those decisions and, uh, to decide as to whether, you know, this is going to be a moment of transformation for the sector, um, whether we're going to, for example, actively value casual workers, um, rather than, not counting them in the number of uh, jobs lost, which I think has been seen across the board. Um, mm-hmm. So how have uh, university management responded or not to, to some of the demonstrations that have been happening? Management's response has really been disappointing. Uh, not even answering questions, let alone uh, responding. So the argument that we've consistently had is that uh, the the issues that are facing the university sector cannot and should not be pushed onto university staff, in particular casual staff. The the universities we're talking about are, are public institutions with a with the most perfect credit ratings at a time when interest rates have never been lower in history. They could borrow against it. They have future funds. They have hundreds of millions of dollars in cash reserves, particularly here at University of Sydney, that are specifically out for times like this, uh, where we can weather what I think anyone would say is a pretty catastrophic time. Uh, but instead, the decisions university management have, have made, instead of relying on those savings and making uh, the kind of choices that can protect, our, protect the quality of education as well as jobs and conditions, uh, it's really been, in particular at the moment, casual staff who've weathered the, the brunt of that. They've slashed, slashed the numbers of jobs, 
pushed up the sizes of tutorials, including in-person tutorials, um, and this has been their response uh, in terms of uh, policy. And we've been quite consistently trying to call this out, but management have essentially uh, said, refused, just dodged the question. Like they leaked, there were these quote-unquote scenario plans where they talked about up to 30% job losses. And when this caused a stir among staff saying one in three jobs gone is an outrage, this is not a legitimate response to the crisis, said, oh, these are only scenarios. Uh, They didn't say they would withdraw the scenarios or say that we're no longer going to make these plans. They just said, oh, you're overreacting, da-da-da. And at the moment, we have a a real uh, fight over a voluntary redundancy program that the government is, that the um, management are trying to use to basically reduce uh, permanent staffing levels and make it more difficult. But we really haven't seen any response from management, which has been really disappointing. Yeah, it's really concerning um, that I think across the board, a lot of these decisions are sort of being made in, um, in a way that's not quite not not that transparent to to university workers and also to university students, um, which is why I think, you know, these alliances between students and workers are so important to try and push for transparency and for accountability, um, you know, to keep the health of our sector. Um, So I guess I wanted to, um, before we finish up, go towards um, a different type of action that's been happening at the University of Sydney. Uh, So I know that staffs have been organizing some socially distant teach outs on campus, and that sounds really cool to me. I've seen um, a couple of posts about them. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about what's been happening there and what, what's being taught? What's being taught? Uh, in response to what it, it's, it's been a continuous battle when every time that police uh, crush student demonstrations, a lot of staff have been really incen- uh, incensed by it. Um, staff have given hundreds of dollars to help pay for students' legal fees. Um, and it's also caused staff basically to mobilize to call for this kind of policing to end. So we've seen a, a handful of, um, staff protests that have been really quite significant, I think, in countering the narrative that this is necessary or that staff will allow students to be treated like this. Um, but most recently at the last uh, demonstration just a couple of weeks ago, um, students had organized uh, a number of number of protests, drawing out some of the uh, aspects of the cuts, in particular the um, the sexist nature of the, the the cuts that we're seeing. They're calling this the pink recession, which is a really important message. Um, so staff at the time organized to have basically a kind of free school educational kind of speak out with a whole array of staff talking about the talking about this is a teaching moment to see what is the history of protest movements here and across the world what is the nature of the university this is what this is a a moment a real moment for learning um and so what was quite cool is that that is that is specifically within the public health order so police were not able to uh, not able to do anything about students sitting down and learning. And so that was a real way for students and staff to work together um, to try to use that uh, amendment under the public health order to basically allow students to sit, listen to staff, and for staff to obviously be, I think, showing solidarity with the, the fights that really are to defend staff jobs as well as um, students' education. 
Yeah, that's awesome. I think um, it's always really exciting to see how that solidarity comes through and also results in this sort of um, broader level of political education as well. Um, so I think uh, we're probably going to have to wrap up in a sec, but is there anything else that you'd like to mention um, before we finish up that we didn't touch on in the interview? We're really trying to call on people to oppose the next round of attacks that we're seeing from the federal liberal liberal government, in particularly in the um, the the changes to fees with the job ready graduates um, legislation that's coming through at the moment. Uh, and we're really anticipating here in Sydney trying to push for a bit of a budget demonstration. And so I would put a call out to anyone who's able to show us support, sharing uh, articles on social media and just spreading the word about what's going on. I think if we see, if we do see this, if we do see this legislation go through, there will be a whole nother round of attacks through university management. um, And it is something that we're taking very seriously. So I guess I would just flag that this is a, this is an ongoing issue and any way that people can support, spread the word and even begin to mobilise in whatever way you can by taking a selfie at home, uh, sharing it to Facebook events. All of these things help to build the kind of social solidarity we need to fight back these cuts and, you know, begin to turn this around. Thank you so much. And um, where can people find out a bit more about what's happening with the campus protest? Is there a Twitter handle, Facebook page that people should be looking at? There are buckets. There's the University of Sydney Casuals Network, is sharing. There's staff and students say no cuts, which is a another Facebook page that people can follow. Yeah, there's also the Education Action Group, which is a student group fighting against the cuts. So all of these things, if people could check them a follow, we do live streams of the demonstrations we're having and try to keep people updated about the fight here. Um, but we do encourage people to follow what's going on at all of the other different campuses because this we, we are really all in this together. Yeah, definitely. And um, I'll put links to that in uh, the post about the show on Twitter and on Instagram so that listeners can go back to our Insta at, at 3CR Thursday Breakfast and find out where to follow these pages. Um, but, Danny, thanks so much for joining me on the show. I really appreciated getting the chance to speak with you about this. That was an interview with Danny Cotton, who's a casual tutor and PhD student at the University of Sydney and a member of the USID Casuals Network. Danny joined me to speak about the recent protests against course and staff cuts and fee hikes at the University of Sydney, as well as the New South Wales police response. CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Today, I'm joined by Kristen O'Connell, Acting Communications Coordinator from Australian Unemployed Workers' Union. Kristen joins us today to speak about the recent cuts to Centrelink payments and also changes to mutual obligations. Thanks so much, Kristen, for joining us on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Thanks for having me, Carly. So, first up, can you talk about uh, the Australian Unemployed Workers' Union? So, who is it for and what can you support your members with? Yeah, um, well, our union is for everyone, actually. So obviously our membership is mostly made up of people who are trying to survive on uh, or in our horrific welfare system. 
Um, and we do have a solidarity membership as well. So if you're in waged work or you're retired, you can also join the union. It's really important to us that workers and people uh, in all situations actually stand together and fight for each other's rights. So that's why our union is open to everyone. It's free to join as well. Um, and what support can you provide to your members? So we provide quite a large number of um, services, both to our members and um, in terms of public uh, advocacy as well. So the most important thing that we do as a union is offer one-on-one support to people who are struggling to deal with their job agency and are not having their rights communicated to them or respected. They can call up our helpline at any time. There are people available to answer the phone straight away during work hours, or you can leave a voicemail and we'll call you back. Uh, you can also reach us on Facebook via direct message if that's more comfortable for you. And we will answer specific questions, provide you with rights information and support you to, you know, do whatever will help you have the best engagement that you can with your job agency. It's really important that people feel supported in that process because uh, so many job agencies treat people in a really brutal cruel and demoralising way, and the system itself is very demeaning and patronising. So people need a lot of support with that. In addition to that, we produce a lot of materials so that people can understand their rights and advocate for themselves. So we have a rights guide uh, throughout the pandemic. We've been providing detailed, updated rights guides uh, as the situation and the requirements have been constantly changing and the government has just been putting out such confusing information for people and also information that's very thin. So we've been working directly with the department to get clarification on a lot of issues that face members and people on income support to provide that detailed information and do the government's job for it, essentially. We also uh, do a lot of work combating really harmful narratives in the media and essentially debunking everyone's, you know, the misconceptions about unemployed people. All of these stories you might have seen lately about apparently job seeker being a designer drug because it's currently at the poverty line or people refusing to take jobs. And all of those things are based on generally false information um, or being misconstrued by employers or unfortunately even the social services minister and Rustin uh, in order to undermine job seekers and give people in the broader community a sense that we deserve to be mistreated. So let's talk about JobSeeker in the context of COVID-19. And due to COVID-19, JobSeeker, which for listeners um, was formerly known as New Start, had its first real increase in payments in over 20 years. So how has this made a difference in people's lives? Yeah, just to give people a sense of what that increase meant, um, my mum would have been on this payment in about 1994 And in 1994, the payment was $275 a week. And as of February 2020, the payment was $275 a week. And at the moment, the government's plan is that in January 2021, the payment will be $275 a week. So people think about, who are old enough to think about, what their housing costs were, what their bills were like, the fact that they had no internet or mobile phone bills in the early 90s and were trying to survive on the same amount of money today with no reflection of the increased costs or changes in consumer price index, for example. So it is really brutal. And uh, what it has meant to people with the government doubling the payment up to the poverty line during COVID is 
very basic things like they can eat properly. We know that one third of people during COVID with the payment at the poverty line were still not able to eat regularly or as regularly as they should. Uh, the payment has meant people could catch up on debts that they had incurred because they couldn't pay their basic bills like electricity and telephone on the old rate, catch up on rent. Uh, we had one story from a member who had a car in their front yard for two years that they could not afford to repair. And of course, not having access to a car can be a huge barrier to employment. So the kinds of things people have been doing with the money are really basic for the most part. We also like had some people tell us really good stories. Like I bought a Twitch and that's awesome because no one should be, you know, forced to live a life where they have no joy and they have nothing. They're not allowed to have hobbies or things that are fun. So it was really great to hear those stories, but unfortunately they were in the minority because, as I said, most people were living in such deep poverty before the changes that they were just using that money to get themselves as far out of the financial hole they were in as they possibly could. We also have, of course, almost doubled the number of people who are trying to live on these payments. So there are people who've never had to live on them before or haven't for a long time. And for those people, the payment has been crucial in allowing them to stay in their home. And this rate cut means, of course, that's going to be a lot harder for people who made financial commitments before COVID that they now will no longer be able to keep and were already struggling to keep with the higher rate. Mm. And I think something as well that mainstream media hasn't really covered is the increase household costs during COVID as well. Um, I know that I was talking to a large family um, just down the road the other week and I was saying that they had $3,000 in bills because all of their family has been home um, instead of the kids going to school and, yeah, big family. Um, and that's just not stories that are being told as well, even despite the fact that um, Centrelink income has increased people also have increased living costs especially for families um and yeah can you talk a little bit about the recent cuts to job seeker yeah and just on the increased costs uh there are of course extra costs with being at home more um personally my electricity bill has gone up a lot uh but there's also really um we're not talking about the fact that because cheaper products have flown off the shelves as everyone's been feeling the financial crunch. People who depend on being able to buy the cheapest of everything have had to pay more for the basics. Not just that, before COVID, more than 40% of people on the New Start payment and now Job Seeker, living on half the poverty line, were disabled or had a chronic illness. The costs of supports that disabled folks need or anyone with a serious health condition have also skyrocketed. So there's just so many ways in which people have been struggling more financially and also on the lowest payments. So, you know, it's also worth adding that the supplement of $550 was not extended to people in the disability support pension. So as their costs went up, they also got no additional um, support that would enable them to bear those costs. So the cuts, uh, as I said, are really going to cause people a lot of financial stress, both those people going back onto a lower payment. It's $150 a week below the poverty line now as of yesterday. Um, and we've, as I said, got lots of people who've never had to live on this payment before who are trying to cope with all kinds of things. If you've had a rent deferral during COVID, 
You may now have an eviction moratorium being lifted. You have your landlord trying to recover debts that you not only couldn't afford to pay on the poverty line rate, but can even less afford to pay on the new rate and also let alone catch up on a debt that you've accrued as a result. Most people weren't able to negotiate rent reductions. So that's an extremely problematic situation where we know we're going to see people uh, having to move out of their homes, having to break leases, and again, incurring more and more costs as a result of those things. Um, we also know that there's a broader problem here. We've got people having their payments cut, increasing financial distress. We have absolute uncertainty from the government. They have said they will refuse to provide any clarity in the budget next week about what they will do long term with the rate. As I said, their current plan is to take it back right down to its old rate as of 1 January next year. So they will not announce anything next week, which means we will have people just a couple of months out from Christmas having no idea what financial uh, situation they're going to be in uh, come 2020. And so therefore, again, no ability to plan and all of these things contribute to anxiety. At the same time, as we've got so many people who've been isolated from friends and family because there have been restrictions, uh, as I said, maybe having to be moving home. Um, so this is all going to contribute uh, to really severe mental ill health effects. We're very worried about what's going to happen to people's health, both physical and mental. Again, not being able to eat properly will throw people straight back into all kinds of health problems that they cannot afford to get treatment for because it's a choice between paying the electricity bill and going to the doctor. There's just so many ways in which this is going to harm people. And there's also some changes to mutual obligations. So can you tell listeners what are mutual obligations and what kinds of things do people generally have to do to perform their mutual obligations? And then we'll get into um, you know, some of the penalties um, that people might face if they don't comply with their mutual obligations. Yeah, mutual obligations are um, a really punishing and pointless way of forcing people on income support to do activities that will not help them get a job, that waste their time and energy simply to be able to continue to receive their poverty payment. So uh, it includes things like doing, in normal times, 20 job applications per month. Now, I know that most people are probably not as uh, over the top as me, but you know, I would spend usually a day at least on a job application. That means I'm essentially working full time on job applications. And even before the pandemic, there were about like by the most conservative measure, there were about eight job seekers for every job advertised. And of course, that doesn't take into account the fact that those jobs may not fit the skills of the people looking for work or the fact that people already in work are also applying for those jobs. So we have a system that's requiring you to do things apparently to get you into work. And the evidence shows that it doesn't achieve that anyway. But in an, in an environment where uh, there are not enough jobs. So we've got this double whammy of people being required to do really demoralizing things that, again, contribute um, to, to ill health, create ill health, whilst uh, there's no hope of it actually working for them. In 2014, before the current requirements were introduced, People were on payments for an average of two years and two months. So the idea that the government calls this as a transitional payment is just absolute nonsense, and they know it. And after this system has been in place, this system that is supposedly designed to force people into work 
as of 2019, people were on average on a payment for more than three years. Now we're in a recession. We weren't in a recession during that time. The government used to boast about our economic position, and that was what was happening in the welfare system. So the ways in which they're trying to coerce people into mostly insecure, crappy jobs wasn't succeeding before, and it's certainly not going to produce any better results now that we have double the number of people being forced to engage with this system. I should add, like, the job applications is just one element. That's the least harmful part of the system. People get forced into really pointless training courses where they might be taught uh, basic literacy skills that they also ha already have. They might be forced to learn how to turn on a computer and open up a software application. Recently, we heard um, from someone about a guy with a master's in IT in that course. We hear about people being taught how to tie shoelaces and shake hands so that they're apparently more presentable for a job interview. And of course, the job agencies usually have these training courses set up in a way that they are profiting also from, you know, delivering the training. And then there's the worst component of the system, which is work for the doll. And work for the doll is something people do not have to do. No one has to do work for the doll. There are alternatives, but job agencies and businesses make money from the government. They get public funds to put people in these programs. So people get lied to. They don't be, they're not informed of their rights and they end up on these work sites that are dangerous. Last year, Ernst and Young published a report saying that 64% of work for the doll sites did not meet the requirements for safety. And yet those work for the doll sites are not being shut down. We have one, one example, a horrific example. 2016, a man, a young man called Josh Park Thing was on a work for the doll site in Toowoomba at the Toowoomba showgrounds, was put into a dangerous situation and he died. And the government took four years to release a report into what happened to Josh and they did it at the height of the pandemic so that no one paid attention to it, reported on it. They dropped it on a Saturday afternoon. It's just disgusting. So work for the doll is egregious and it means that you get an extra $20 a, a fortnight in your payment for up to 25 hours a week of work and that works out to 40 cents an hour um, for, for the labour that you're doing. It's, it's appalling. So uh, we're also very worried about the budget um, potentially including an announcement that is essentially an expansion work for the dole on steroids. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if that's what the Australian government has, um, has in plan. Uh, so just lastly, can you talk about some of the AUWU campaigns that are currently happening and how listeners can follow those campaigns and support them? Yeah, our two highest priorities right now are actually immediate responses to what is happening with the changes as a result of the pandemic. As we've talked about, the rate was, for, for the first time in memory, put at the poverty line. And that made a huge difference, both in people's ability to survive, but also equipped them to actually look for work, work that was meaningful, work that they might actually have a chance of getting, and to give themselves time to develop skills that would help them be more successful in their job search. So we are campaigning very hard to have that rate restored. We are also uh, seeking to have the penalties for mutual obligations or not doing your mutual obligations uh, suspended again. So uh, people might not know that the mutual obligations that I just talked about were fully suspended for several months as a result of the pandemic. Uh, again, people talk to us about actually having time to do things that would help them find work. 
And as of yesterday, the government has again given the job agencies complete power to cut people off their payment for not doing something simple like answering a phone call that usually doesn't even get made at a time when it's planned. So, you know, we get constant reports. And I've just had one right before this interview about, you know, a person who uh, was told that they would have an appointment at 10.30 this morning, was told that information this morning at 10.30, didn't get a phone call, was worried and terrified that their payment wouldn't turn up in their account. So they proactively contacted their job agency only to be told that it's a public holiday. So actually that appointment isn't going ahead. And this is the kind of thing that puts people at risk of not receiving their poverty payment, which they're completely dependent on, um, because, you know, there's this incompetence, there's this failure to actually have humanity and care for people and any respect um, for job seekers. So uh, the penalties are really harsh and they're very sudden and they're often um, not actually correctly applied anyway. The penalties are applied for things in a way that gives job agencies, you know, really untenable power over people. However, last year there was a report in The Guardian that showed uh, 120-odd thousand people were cut off their payment wrongly. So they didn't get their bill that week, but they, their money that week, but they actually hadn't even done anything wrong. Uh, even if the system itself is wrong and punishes people for things it shouldn't punish them for, they hadn't even done those basic things wrong. So it's clearly a system that is designed to penalise people simply for not having a job. And how can listeners um, follow the work of AUWU? Yeah, so we are very active on social media, on Facebook and Twitter, and people can keep up to date with the new information that we're putting out to provide support to those um, who rely on welfare payments. But they can also keep up to date with those campaigns that I just talked about and also our longer-term campaigns. So we are also calling for the full abolition of mutual obligations to return job agencies and employment services to public hands so that there is no profit incentive um, and to, you know, have all kinds of job creation programs so that people have options to get into work, um, you know, if and when they're ready to. So uh, social media is great. I would encourage everyone to go to our website. Uh, it is a little bit old and clunky, but we're working on uh, trying to get a new one that's a bit nicer. Uh, but at the moment, you can go there. You can sign up as a member. As I mentioned earlier, we have a membership level for people who are trying to survive in the system, and that's the Fight Back membership. We also have a solidarity membership for those who want to support unemployed workers um, and help us, uh, you know, get our message out there, support people in their life who are trying to live in this system. Um, so join up. Uh, you will hear more from us. Um, you can also, if you have the means, and I know this is really difficult for people right now, you can donate to the union. We don't receive any steady funding. We have no, we will not take any government funding um, and we don't have any kind of major donors or, or grants. So we are all unpaid. Um, we're by the unemployed for the unemployed. There are no paid staff. Um, we do a huge amount of work and we do it for free. And the donations that we use go into creating you know, allowing us to get tools and systems in place that will provide um, better support to our members and enable those of us who do all the unpaid work to do our jobs more easily. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Thank you very much, Carly. It's been a pleasure. And that was a conversation that I had with Kristen O'Donnell. 
Australian Unemployed Workers' Union Acting Communications Coordinator, who joined us to speak about the Australian Government's recent cuts to job seeker payments and the union's concerns about changes to mutual obligations for income support recipients. TCR Community Radio, 855 AM. G'day you mob, Kutcher Edwards here. I just want to send out a message to you all. To stop the spread of COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus, it is advised that you keep 1.5 metres away from each other. Follow rules on social gatherings. Wash your hands when appropriate and stay home if you're feeling sick or unwell. But most of all, keep strong, stay safe and of course, keep listening to 3CR Community Radio to keep connected to the community. We'll get through this and hope to see you real soon. Bye. You're on 3CR 855 AM, and this is the Thursday Breakfast Show. We now go to an interview with Robin Oxley to talk about the recent practice direction from the Victorian State Coroner. Robin Oxley is a Tharawal and Yorta Yorta woman, and she's a criminologist and lecturer at Western Sydney University. Hey, Robin, thanks so much for taking the time to join me on the show. Hi, Priya, how are you going? Good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, really good, thanks. Um, so could you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do before we get started? Sure. So uh, before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge um, the country on um, where I am at the moment is, is Wurundjeri country. I'm a Kulin Nations. Pay my respects to the elders um, past and present, uh, but also to my elders, the Tharawal and Yorta Yorta elders past and present. And um, I'd like to acknowledge that land has never, um, sovereignty has never been ceded on those lands as well. Um so my name is Robin Oxley. I'm a Tharawal and Yorta Yorta woman. I am a criminologist and lecturer um, at Western Sydney Uni. Uh, I have roots to Monash University as well. I did my undergrad there um, and honours and masters as well. Um, and yeah, my areas of interest in research generally is anything, um, any Aboriginal affairs within the criminal justice system, but particularly looking at the way the criminal justice system operates um, and the racist legislation that is rife throughout the criminal justice system against Aboriginal people. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, so just to provide a bit of background for this discussion, uh, the Victorian State Coroner, Judge John Kane, issued a practice direction last Tuesday, uh, which included new standards for investigating Aboriginal deaths in custody in Victoria. Um, so maybe before we go into discussing that, um, could you tell us a bit about what a coronial inquest entails and when do they happen? Sure. So, um, so a coronial inquest is, uh, is a public hearing into a death or, um, fire, actually. Um, so an inquest is not held, um, in every investigation and approximately only about a hundred or five percent of all investigations end up, um, as a coronial inquest. So it's not a trial. Um, therefore, there are no findings or guilt or blame. Um, there's no set time frame for an inquest and it can take place, um, you know, sometimes it can take a few days, a few hours, a few months. Like there's really no time frame for it. And it really depends on how um, 
complex the case is and you know the amount of the submissions that are received and how many witnesses are called etc um they're generally open to the public uh they're much different to other court proceedings um and there are two reasons why i guess a coroner would hold an inquest um one of them is um you know if the circumstances around the death or fire are unclear or or if the public health and safety are, are at risk. They're the two reasons why. Uh, there is some mandatory inquests as well that happen. So a coroner must hold one, um, hold an inquest. And if there are cases that include a person um, who dies from unnatural causes, and if that person cannot be identified, um, or if the coroner suspects homicide and no one's been charged in relation to the death. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, so, in terms of the changes that have been outlined in this practice direction, um, what are some of the key changes um, and can you talk us through what their effects might be? Sure. So it's it's simply a change in the way that the coroner's court uh, in Victoria investigates Indigenous deaths in custody and in a way that reflects the recommendations from the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody um, report and recommendations that were made almost 30 years ago in 1991. Um, the new standards for investigating Aboriginal deaths in custody includes a requirement that the coroner attend uh, the scene of the death where practical, um, if they can, rather than the reliance of reporting um, of that death by the police um, or any other officers that are conducting the investigation. And I think, you know, this is an important requirement um, and one of the arguments I have in relation to this is that the information um, that is relayed by the police and other agencies still come from that same source. So just because the coroner is present doesn't mean that they are taking in their own evidence or even just, um, you know, making their own assumptions and investigation. They're still relying on, you know, their police officers' reports who could be buddies, you never know. Um, but some of the other requirements include uh, the coroner's court to contact um, the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, VALS, within 48 hours of an Indigenous death in custody, so that the next of kin are notified and informed of their rights. Um, this should mean so much more funding for VALS with the added workload and resourcing that we'll be using in these instances. Uh, so within 28 days of an Aboriginal death in custody, um, the coroner will be required to hold preliminary um, direction hearings, which is important for a number of factors. And it means that the case will not be left unattended and investigated within four weeks of the death and not left for months on end. Uh, it also means that there is less chance for collaboration between policing units and reports written by investigating police uh, would be, that'd be finalised in a more timely manner in a perfect world, I guess. Um, and other things about the requirements was to include some cultural aspects and to, you know, we need to, I guess the, the coroner's court, um, in general, um, are attempting to make the courtroom a more culturally appropriate manner. And this may include a smoking ceremony and acknowledgement of country and including some significant, um, artifacts or, um, cultural uh, importance to whoever's in that room, um, it may be displayed in the courtroom. Yeah, so that's um, that's definitely um, still up for interpretation, right? The the may there. Um, mm -hmm. 
So in terms of yeah, the changes that you've you've outlined, how do you how do you think that the uh, the practice direction will actually assist the purposes of, of the coroner's court? Will this assist to better their investigation processes? Because I'm particularly thinking about um, issues around police investigating police, as um, you know, raised in the case of Auntie Tanya Day, and the notion of sort of state impunity or uh, police impunity with respect to Indigenous deaths in custody. Yeah, I, I believe it's a step in the right direction, but we really have to stop with the whole idea that being culturally appropriate is to have a few spears on the wall and paint work up in the wall and an acknowledgement of country before the inquest begins. And we've seen um, how tokenistic acknowledgements are becoming and implementing these measures will only ever make the criminal justice system look good. And after they think that they have included us in their investigative processes and inquests, they just give themselves a pat on the back as if to say, problem fixed, you know, but it's more than this. The lives that we've lost as a result of how many Aboriginal deaths in custody have occurred since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody recommendations and report in 1999, which is over 440, mind you, um, is more than pots of paint or canvases or disconnected words to acknowledgement of country they never knew. And they can, and the continued racist legislation enforced by police, um, whose brutality and violence continues to oppress Aboriginal people. Definitely. And I think, um, this sort of raises some concerns around the retroactive nature, I guess, of, of some of the, the changes where, um, you know, Aboriginal people are still, you know, assumed to be subject to certain harms. Um, and then it's only at this coronial point that particular changes are being made. Um, so do you have any concerns about, um, apart from what you've already outlined, about the practical effects of these changes? And um, can you foresee any challenges that might arise in relation to um, what's been outlined in the practice direction down the line? Yeah, I think my concern has nothing to do with the Aboriginal community's involvement, and I'm going to be very like very. Um, honest about that. And I think we're working within a system that was never designed for us. It was designed by white men for white men to punish. And even when they leave the system, they still punish. So the criminal justice system continues to punish people um, well past their time served. Uh, so the issues I have are more related to how Aboriginal culture and cultural appropriateness is defined within the criminal justice system. Now, how they're going to fix their problem of overrepresentation and Aboriginal deaths in custody, because we have provided over and over through royal commissions, recommendations, submissions. Um, we fought on the streets through the Black Lives Matter protests, um, Invasion Day marches, so many other grassroots levels um, and, and voices have been spoken on these issues and still the number of imprisonment increases, uh, the amount of money being poured into prisons and making more cell blocks in Camberwell um, just recently is just getting beyond a joke. So until we stop police investigating police and we have Aboriginal coroners investigating the deaths of Aboriginal people, then we're really not going to see any changes and Aboriginal culture will be seen through the eyes of the criminal justice system, as I said, just as pots of paint and that's how they believe a culturally appropriate space should involve. Yeah, it is um, really concerning that we, we've seen, you know, for, for people following along in Victoria, especially, we've seen the fight that's gone on recently uh, with Auntie Tanya Day's family, but also, you know, around the country, you know, there's currently um, scrutiny over the, the death of Auntie Sherry Fisher um, in, in Brisbane. Um, you know, these changes were recommended 29 years ago. Um, and yet 
this is all still continuing. I'm just wondering um, about your thoughts on whether, you know, reforms like this will prevent future Indigenous deaths in custody, or maybe some of your thoughts around the broader landscape of criminal justice reform in Australia. I think there's this notion that uh, the criminal justice system can be decolonised, but to truly decolonise something, you need to unlearn its purpose and understand it in a way that it was pre-colonial. And that can't be done with a system that is entrenched with systemic racism. Um, it's been, it was built on settler colonialism and refuses to accept the history of colonisation in this country. Um, now, the Black Lives Matter protests have been happening long before it was termed Black Lives Matter. Um, with the frontier wars in this country, you know, proof of fighting back against the colonisers, brutal murders of Aboriginal um, communities. And for the criminal justice system to even recognise and accept that they need reform is the first step. And I think it's, it's not a broken system. It does exactly what it has always set out to do, and that's to continue violence, racism and oppression. Thank you for laying that out so clearly, because I think um, this is this is one of those concerns that has really come into view um, during you know, the amplification of the global Black Lives Matter movement and thinking about what it means to actually make meaningful systemic change. Um, you know, thinking about the difference between reformist reforms and, and steps towards abolition, for example. Um, so, gosh, I think I'm I think I'm out of questions. But is there anything else that um, you'd like to talk about that I haven't raised? Um, I think just as I previously said, like the Aboriginal community work within the system that has done their utmost to ensure Aboriginal culture is not only visible but understood and respected. And I think it would be great to see the criminal justice system fix their problem of over-policing, um, systemic racism, and fix their racist legislation. Like we, um, I did want to kind of briefly touch on the not oh, – there was a commitment to abolish public drunkenness, the summary offence, um, in the wake of – the Vani Tanya Day's coronal inquest, and they haven't done it yet. It's still, it's still there. So we're talking August last year is when the promise was to to abolish this law, and they haven't done that yet. So um, I think you know when we look at these small steps within a coroner's court to implement you know cultural appropriateness and what have you, we really need to look back at legislation. We really need to start at policing, not the end of a problem. We, we can't get to the end and then say, oh, hang on a minute, let's just make sure that we've got a possum skin cloak somewhere or pop some artwork up quickly because, you know, we want to make sure that this is a safe and welcoming environment. We don't want to be there to start with. That's the whole thing. We need to be looking straight, you know, right at the beginning of the problem and saying, how do we fix it there? So that's probably just one of the other things I wanted to really kind of point out in this interview. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, as important as it is to have um, spaces, you know, for, for families to investigate and, and grieve through that process that are as culturally appropriate as possible, that's really just addressing the symptoms of the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, where can people find out more information about this or, or find you online and, and hear some more of your um, your insights into the criminal justice system in Australia? Sure. Uh, so I'm on Twitter um, at Robin underscore Oxley. Um, I'm normally on there pretty a lot, so uh, I do <laughs> voice a lot of my um, grievances with the criminal justice system. Um, so, yeah, you can hit me up there. Awesome. Thank you so much, Robin. I really appreciate you making the time. No problem. I enjoy coming on here, so I love it. So thanks for having me.
That was an interview with Robin Oxley, who's a Tharwal and Yorta Yorta woman and a criminologist and lecturer at Western Sydney University. Robin joined us to speak about the recent practice direction handed down by the Victorian State Coroner, which includes new standards for investigating Aboriginal deaths in custody in Victoria. That was an absolutely packed show. Um, and if you missed out on any of it or want to listen back, you can catch it again on www.3cr.org.au slash Thursday breakfast. So just to recap what we heard today, first up, you heard an interview where Carly spoke with Shahrazad from the show about Omar Radi, a Moroccan journalist who's recently been jailed on a series of charges, including espionage. We then return to Thursday Breakfast Poetry and Writing segment, where we heard Janine Lane's Color of Massacre and Boy Dentata by Vincent Silk. After that, we heard an interview with Danny Cotton, who's a casual tutor and PhD student at UCID and a member of the UCID Casuals Network, who spoke about the recent protests against course and staff cuts and fee hikes at the university. Kristen O'Connell from the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, who's currently acting as communications director there, joined Carly to speak about the Australian government's recent cuts to job seeker payments and concerns around mutual obligations. And finally, Robin Oxley joined me to speak about the recent practice direction issued by the Victorian State Coroner regarding Indigenous deaths in custody. And Robin Oxley is a Tharawal and Yorta Yorta woman and criminologist and lecturer at Western Sydney Uni. So that's all we've got time for today, folks, but hopefully we'll catch you next week. And until then, take care of yourselves and we'll go to Lost in Science. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton, or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.